Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. There it is. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It is Wednesday, the 12th of July. And today is going to be an interesting one. I have so many dots. We're going to try to put them all together for you. I stayed up last night very late, later than I intended to, and I kept having all these thoughts running through my head. What in the heck is going on here? Chris Ray is about to go and testify in front of Congress yet again. Um, I don't think we're going to see a lot going on. I had my phone blowing up. I had Newsmax. I had Fox. I had all these other people asking me to show up on their shows, give some commentary on what my former boss might be saying and uh, and the end of the day, none of that really matters because that doesn't change the culture. It doesn't change the history and it doesn't change what has to be done, which we're going to be getting into today. There is a, a problem in this country of targeting the most vulnerable. And I think that you all will be immediately, immediately able to see what I'm talking about. I think you'll understand exactly who those victims are. And they're just trying to grow the victim set. So. Before we get too deep into the weeds on that, and it will be a, uh, I think probably a, a dark thing. We'll try to walk away on a moment of hope. The uh, the upside is I'm going to be flying to Memphis later on, and I will be seeing Ryan Matta in person. So I am Ryan Ryan flying solo today. No Ryan, no producer Phil, just winging it. So thanks all of you for what we've got going on out there. I appreciate that you guys are um, are joining me for this interesting experience. <laughs> Let's talk real quick and say thanks to our sponsors right now. First, I want to say thanks to Patriot Coolers. I've got my Patriot Cooler right here. It is with me. And this is their website. You can go to Patriot Coolers. Ooh, that's not Patriot Coolers. There's Patriot Coolers. PatriotCoolers.com. <laughs> uh, check them out. They're built for freedom. A fantastic product. I use it literally every day. I take it when I work out. I take it when I fly. It'll be packed in my carry-on. This is the way that we move around here. You never know when you might need to bring a tumbler for hydration. And uh, they also have excellent coolers that are soft-sided, hard-sided, all the things that you might want. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, promo code Kyle, to get 10% off. If you spend more than 50 bucks, which is quite easy to do, if you find uh, there's going to be a lot of things on there you want, it's pretty easy to just go out there and, and uh, load up a bunch of different colored tumblers. You never know. They're great gifts. Patriot Coolers, 10% off. Go ahead and fill up your cart. Take care of these folks. They take care of us, and they also take care of our veterans. They do a donation with every single purchase that you have. It goes to a Veterans Mobility Foundation that will help retrofit houses for American vets that are having a hard time. So that's pretty good stuff. We're also going to say a thanks to Catholic Vote. There they are. Catholic Vote, America's top Catholic advocacy organization. They're in the fight for faith, family, and freedom. All three things that we love here at the Kyle Serafin Show. Sign up for The Loop, keeping you in The Loop. That's their email chain. And you just pop in your email and a zip code. You will get a personalized email sharing national news, local news that's going to be relevant to you coming from Catholic Vote's news service and also some of the big wires that are out there. All things that are good. And in fact... I think this might be a perfect moment to unveil my Catholic Vote coffee mug. There it is. We're going to supercharge this situation. Let's get started here about the victimization of Americans. I did see you all in the chat, so I just want to say thanks so much for joining us. And I saw that Cookie's already out there giving me a hard time about my shirt. I don't sell these shirts. This is going to be have to be a uh, 
This is going to be, have to be a solution coming from our friend Garrett O'Boyle. I'm sure he'll get there. So let's pivot real quickly over here. I've got a couple screens set up, and I want to read a couple things. This came right off Twitter. This has actually got me started. This actually got me very concerned. And there's a couple things that don't necessarily make sense until we put them all together. So let's take our time, and let's do that real quick. Uh, yesterday, Sean Davis, who works at The Federalist, he tweeted out that the FBI is a domestic terrorist organization. And, and that is a pretty bold claim coming from a mainstream publication. Conservative nonetheless. That is a, a hard place for us to sit at. And he did so by quote tweeting a guy named Glenn Greenwald, who we're going to cover one of his stories today. And many of you re may remember Greenwald was at The Intercept. I think he actually founded The Intercept. He is no longer with them, and he just reports on his own right now. And his tweet, which uh, goes to an entire Rumble video, you guys can check that out if you're following my timeline. He says, a new report says the FBI worked with Ukrainian intelligence to pressure and direct big tech to censor Americans and U.S. journalists expressing dissent to Biden's war policy in Ukraine. So you can send your money to Ukraine, and then they work with the FBI to censor you, the Ukrainian flag. Um, that should be troubling to everybody uh, on the right and on the left. Censorship, <laughs> we used to know this in this country, journalists don't need to be censored. They need to be holding the powerful to account. And instead, right now, we have a entire left-wing media, all of those in the mainstream, are rushing and they are stretching themselves backwards to lick the boots of our federal government because that's what feeds them their narratives. Uh, we're seeing that in the form of hit pieces. My buddies are getting some of these. I've obviously seen some of those. And actually, Friday's show is going to have someone who had a hit piece because he's not towing the line of the media narrative. Let's move to another thing here. Jesse Kelly, you'll know him at Jesse Kelly DC. He has a show on the First Network. I've been on there probably a half dozen times at this point. And he tweeted the same exact story. And his take on it was this. The FBI is a clear and present danger to the United States of America. It cannot continue to exist in any form or it will end this nation. Those are pretty, pretty strong words and pretty scary words. I'm going to give you the receipts on this. We're going to go back in time. We're going to cover things that are not current events, and yet all of them are in fact sort of the most current thing that's going on, which is to say we have a system of government that is betraying the people working in it, and they started off with the most vulnerable. They started off with those who are the most likely to buy into government hype, who are going to be the most likely to be entrapped in government investigations. And then they're now slowly branching out to those of us who are in the rest of the world. But they got a good firm footing. They got a bunch of budgeting. They got a bunch of money. And they have built up the apparatus and the playbook in order to go after this kind of stuff. And so that's why you see people who are mainstream right-wing pundits opining that we're dealing with sort of a fallen nation where, where our apparatus designed to protect us is, in fact, the enemy in many ways. They are the enemy, at least, of freedom, and they are the enemy of their own processes. They have betrayed the information that they claim or the uh, the oaths that they've sort of said that they will go out there and defend Americans. So this is going to get pretty ugly. It's going to be pretty uh, uncomfortable, I think, to think about it. Let's start off with a couple of stories. Uh, bear with me. This is not going to be the most technically brilliant, but I'm going to bring up three stories right now on the screen. Okay, so the first one is going to be this, this one you see on the top corner here, it's a, uh, a piece from the Huffington Post. That's obviously no right-wing piece. And it's actually attributed in 2017 to Ryan J. Riley. This is the Suspendables' favorite buddy, Ryan Riley. 
And the article is entitled, Man Says Family Charged in Right-Wing Terror Sting is Mentally Ill and Incapable of the Attack. This is the story of Jerry Drake Varnell. This was a young man, 23 years old, who was accused of setting off a fake bomb. And by setting off, I mean he pushed the button and basically indicated that he wanted to set off a bomb in Oklahoma City. But unfortunately for him, fortunately for everybody else, this bomb was not a real bomb. It was a manufactured device, an inert device designed to get him to act. And it was designed to allow what we would call either an overt action or material support of terrorism in order to have him arrested on terrorism charges. Now, that man either received 20 or 25 years. Um, the sentence is actually not as relevant as sort of the story about it. And here's the things that even people who are on the political left, like Ryan Riley, can report. It says right here, the family statement said the FBI should have known that Varnell, Varnell has schizophrenia. This is going to be a pattern. And that he's been found mentally incompetent by a court, and he was placed under his parents' legal guardianship. So we now have a 23-year-old who is schizophrenic, who has pushed the button on a fake bomb, who was married at one point and actually attacked his wife. There's a whole bunch of backstory here. But essentially, this guy went out to uh, to try to engage in a terror plot, and he had no ability to do so without the FBI. There's a thing I like to say to people, and it's one of the easiest things to remember. If you ever meet somebody online, and it's almost always online this way, but there's a possibility that you're reported and somebody comes and bumps you. If you meet somebody online and they agree with all of your worst ideas, specifically your most violent ideas, they are willing to help you carry them out, they are willing to encourage them and be your buddy, and they're willing to help you do it for the exact amount of money that you have. That is a Fed. That's either going to be a confidential human source or that is going to be an undercover, either FBI, DEA, HSI, you name it. It doesn't really make a difference. There are plenty of people that are involved in what are called the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces. And these things are the, the tools of the trade there. I'm going to read you a quotation that I think you should hear. This is a statement that was issued by this man's family. Uh, his parents are named Clifford and Melanie, last name Varnell. They said, quote, what the public should be looking at is the fact the FBI gave our sons the means to make this happen. And I just told you, this is exactly the playbook. This has been going on for quite a long time. If you listen to the show, this is not news to you. However, this is what they said, quote, he had no job, no money, no vehicle, no driver's license due to the fact that he's schizophrenic. And we, his parents, do everything we can possible to keep him safe and functional. The mental health system has consistently failed us due to the lack of establishments and healthcare coverage for a person like him. Um, that is not a right-wing position by any means. They say, quote, the FBI came and picked him up from our home, home. They gave him a vehicle. They gave him a fake bomb and every means in order to make this happen, none of which he had access to on his own. They should not have aided and abetted a paranoid schizophrenic to commit this act. This is the first story of the day. I would argue to you that people who are mentally ill, people who are mentally incompetent, people that are in the charge of their parents at the age of 23 years old who are unable to exist in the world, they were unable to keep uh, a, a marriage together. This guy actually was married and then threatened his wife, and it was so dangerous that she ended up leaving. I don't blame her. Uh, this is the kind of guy that the FBI went after and was able to keep running. So that was from 2017, and the story that actually culminated, he's actually been sentenced since that time. We're going to move forward and backwards forward with our with our process here. If you look at the second story underneath that on the right of the screen, you'll see this is an article from Paul Harris in The Guardian. Again, not a right wing organization. 
and the title of this one coming from 2011. We're going to go back in time. This is more than 10 years old. It's 12 years old. <laughs> in fact, the article flagged me by saying this article is more than 11 years old. We get it. It's still relevant. And here's why. Fake terror plots, paid informants, and the tactics of FBI entrapment questioned. Okay, this is not a new, this is not a new situation. This has been going on for quite a long time. Critics say the Bureau is running a sting operation across America, targeting vulnerable people. Here it is, the most vulnerable among us, by luring them into fake terror plots. And there is a biblical piece here. It's been sitting in my head. I think this is what kept me up all night. Um, there was a, a piece from the New Testament that you'll remember. Uh, the actual verse escapes me, but essentially it says, uh, whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. And that's a, a, you know, a quotation. This is words attributed to Jesus Christ saying that the way that you treat those who are most vulnerable reflects very strongly on you, I would say. It is the things that you would do to, to God, <laughs> God as man. And so for me, this is the thing that's been really troubling me all night. This is literally what kept me up. I rolled around in bed for hours and hours. I didn't go to sleep until one o'clock or maybe 1.30 in the morning. And I don't think I slept very well until I got up because our government is actually the ones targeting the most vulnerable, among, the least among us in many ways, the least capable, the, um, the least able, the ones who most need our help, I would say. And instead of giving them the government services that you hear about the political left being most interested in, they're actually being targeted by the FBI, which is supposed to be people who wanted to stand up in the gap and protect, I would say, the least of us. That's the purpose of the badge. There's an old story. I've probably told this before, but it's worth hearing. The FBI badge is very small. For those of you who are watching on our Rumble channel, I'm showing you right now. It's about this big. It's, I think, two and a quarter inches tall, and it's only one and a half inches wide. It is a very small badge. It is slightly bigger than a half dollar, okay? It's smaller than the palm of my hand. You can put it in the palm of your hand and have, have lots of hand on all sides of it. And there's all these questions when you're a new FBI agent and you say, well, why, why is this badge so small? Especially if you work in somewhere like New York or Los Angeles where they have these like dinner plates. Uh, um, you know, our folks out there that are in the chat that are former law enforcement know, you know, something as big as your hand. There's a big value in having a large badge. The value is that by having that badge, people see it, they know what it is, and they know who you are as you come up wearing a, a firearm. But the FBI's badge is not that. And part of it is because it was designed to go on the lapel it was meant to go on an overcoat, as men used to wear when the Bureau was founded in 1908, moved forward and was armed suddenly in 1930s. Uh, I think 1934 was when they first picked up weapons under an act of Congress. But that badge is very, very small. And so the question is always, how come they haven't adapted? And the joke, I don't know if it's a joke or an apocryphal saying that's attributed to J. Edgar Hoover, is that the badge is so small so that you have nothing to hide behind. You can't hide behind the badge. You have to be uh, someone who is faithful, who is brave and full of integrity, fidelity, bravery, integrity, supposed to be the hallmarks of the FBI and, and long self-titled as the premier law enforcement agency in America. And yet we have stories coming out of England. We have this story right here specifically talking about fake terror plots, paid informants, and tactics of entrapment. This is not new being discussed in a British newspaper. So they tell the story in this case. This is the story of David Williams saying that he lived in a gritty, impoverished neighborhood on the banks of the Hudson, about an hour from New York City. He was a young black boy. His father was in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. Bad decisions, drug dealing, go on and on. Tried to go straight, money is tight, so on and so forth. Needed cash for a liver transplant for his brother. Um, this is a pretty, pretty 
easily empathize, empathize story. But he ended up working with the FBI. He ended up dealing with uh, being convicted of a, a terrorist plot. They came after him and were able to get him to basically believe that he was going to shoot down military jets and blow up Jewish synagogues through this sort of Islamic push. And and this is just one story of many. We look at the same page. If you're looking at our, our Rebel channel, you'll see a story. This is a case that I actually worked on. There are there are unintended consequences, even when you set up these people that are in fact mentally ill. I'm gonna tell you this story real quickly because a lot of it is, is uh, from personal knowledge. This is from the New York Post. This is going back to 2020. So we're kind of bouncing around here, 2017, 2011, 2020. My point to you is this is always the same story. This is sister of suspected ISIS terrorist shot dead while trying to stab a Florida cop, written by Lee Brown in the New York Post. And uh, if you're looking at it, uh, the page, you can actually see there's a surveillance footage. This is from outside of a Tampa Sheriff's Department station. Uh, I can't remember what the actual name of the Sheriff's Department is called. It's, I can't remember the county. But you see a guy who's wearing a police jacket. He's wearing a police, um, I think he has sergeant stripes on from the shoulder. You see a woman in a full hijab carrying a very large knife. And she's actually pointing it towards the officer. I think she actually got a swing on him and was able to cut his arm. And she was the sister of a subject. Uh, her actual name was Heba Mamtaz Al... Uh, <laughs> these are so hard for me. Um, Al-Zahari. So Al-Zahari was related to uh, a subject that we ran down, whose name also was Al-Zahari. His name, uh, in fact, was Mohammed Mamtez Al-Zahari. He has actually pled guilty, and he is currently uh, been sentenced, and he's in prison for the things that he did, which was essentially he lost his mind. He was also schizophrenic. He had some difficulty with, with money. He was working for the Home Depot, a couple other things, made some threats, clearly clearly a troubled person, and the FBI ran him down. Now, when they ran him down, they did so because they were able to identify him coming into the United States with a foreign terrorist conviction from the Saudi government. And most of you will wonder like, hey, does the FBI, uh, does the, you know, do the American federal government, do we actually respect Saudi laws? Do we, we take felonies on? No, not to my knowledge, we do not. So having a foreign felony, particularly from something like that, it's not something that we we go after. It's certainly not something that would prohibit you from owning a weapon. But that was actually cited, I think, uh, falsely in his charging documents, in the affidavits in favor of arresting him, in the criminal complaint, which is very long, by the way. And it tells a pretty awful story. It tells the story of a guy who at 15 years old got rolled up with some wannabe Syrian separatists. They He wanted to go join ISIS while living in Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis picked him up, as they do, threw him in prison, had some sort of a trial, convicted him, and he and his father spent the next three years in a cell together. Now, um, Al-Zahari, you know, is he a good guy? No, he's not. But at 15 years old, he was locked up in a cell with his father. His father disowned him and told him that he didn't want to be part of his life, that he was willing to turn. He was going to turn on his son and give him up, which he did. And the Saudis didn't seem to care. <laughs> they just left him in the cell anyway. So Al-Zahari would get pulled into the interrogation cell. They would be asking him all the questions that they might do. And you can imagine being in a Saudi prison is not good. They tortured him, legitimately tortured. I'm not talking about waterboarding where they tried to get information out of him. I'm talking about they poured genital uh, acid on his genitals and burned uh, his genitals, burned his legs, burned his thighs with acid. So that started off. Then he would go back into his cell. 
and he would have the crap beaten out of him by his dad because his dad was trying to get out of there, had turned on him, and then blamed him, his son, for all the problems they had. This guy spent three years being beaten both in his cell and out of his cell. And you can imagine that his ability to trust was probably very, very low. He developed uh, maybe a, pre a predisposition towards it anyway, but ended up being uh, schizophrenic at the end of this episode. And then he got on the radar coming back to the United States. Okay. Um, I asked some questions of the case agents at the time. How do you know that the acid story is true? And they, they said they didn't actually physically check. But when they interviewed him, and here's the big thing, they interviewed him. They brought him in. They were able to assess this guy. And he said that he had a quote-unquote twisted wiener. Now, that was really funny to me and my friends because we didn't know any of the backstory on it. We just heard, what's the story? Oh, he was, uh, he was in a terrorist, and you, know, you don't really know enough about your subject to get empathetic about them. He's a terrorist, and he has a twisted wiener. Why is that? And they were like, well, they dribbled acid all over, all over his junk. And you go, oh, um, that actually sounds horrific. That's, uh, that's a war crime anywhere that that would be done. And rather than sort of empathetically understanding that that might break a human being, three years of that, they didn't. They opened up a full investigation on the counterterrorism space. No allegation, by the way, of crime has to be present in order to open these things up. And so we need to kind of discuss that. We'll, we'll talk about that as soon as I finish the story. But at the end of the day, this guy was investigated for, for a, a long period of time. He made it up to the top tiers of the awareness of the counterterrorism division. It was a nationally breaking story with people that were all over the, the J. Edgar Hoover building. We had United States attorneys on the calls. They were working on putting this thing together. And the, the growing consensus was is that somebody was going to have to kill this guy because he was crazy. And rather than treat him like a crazy person, which he was in Florida, in Tampa. There are rules to do that. There's the Baker Act laws, which would allow you to red flag this guy. I'm not a big fan of red flags by any means. But in, in the case of going and involuntarily um, hospitalizing someone like this, that might've been the right move because he was saying violent things. They were aware of it. You can't, you can't let him go to a hospital and continue with your your CT case. So he went in, he was hospitalized for a few minutes where he was diagnosed this way. And then they basically let him out and said, you know, sort of, you got to handle it on your own. That's not what emergency rooms do, as you might know. And instead, they just followed him. And my team was one of the teams assigned to follow him. Now, I found a lot of this stuff out afterwards reading the criminal complaint, but essentially they set him up on eBay of all places where the federal government came in. And my understanding was they paid $25,000 to buy an eBay account that he was interacting with. And he bought something that was not a firearm. Some of you are familiar with the concept of an 80% lower. I want to break it down because I think it's really worth. We're getting a little deep in the weeds on this, but it's worth knowing. An 80% lower is a piece of plastic, usually. It also could be a piece of metal that is not milled out to become a firearm and requires at least 20% more work to complete it as a firearm. And under U.S. law, you have always been allowed to build your own weapon systems. And so... He had one of these 80% lowers that he purchased. They come with jigs, which is like a piece of plastic on the outside you snap together. It guides the drill so you can actually drill it yourself. There's some work involved, and these are not the most reliable firearms. It's not something I'd want to trust my life to. I have one or two of them. Um, they were outlawed by the ATF at some point after this under what's known as the frame and receiver laws or rules that the ATF passed by itself on its own. And then those were recently overturned. So um, these are not firearms. That being said, he bought it. And he was able to get these things shipped to him. And then they were intercepted by the FBI en route to him. They were intercepted, even though they were not firearms. And then the Bureau reached out through an undercover online and bought this account from eBay and started offering him real weapons, fully completed real weapons. 
and said, let's do this. We're going to be able to sell you whatever you want. Do you want a baby AK, which we took to mean like a, like a Draco style pistol? Uh, would you like a Glock with a suppressor? We can get all these things. We'll send you whatever you want. And so this started happening. Obviously, he didn't know it was the FBI, and he started negotiating back and forth, admitting that he owned other weapons. Now, in the, in the charging documents, the FBI basically said that he was a quote-unquote felon in possession because of his juvenile felony in another country. Now, those of you who know, this is not the kind of deal that makes any sense. You cannot, uh, you cannot actually charge felony in possessions, as far as I understand. I've never heard of that before, and I've, I've done felon in possession cases. But they, they went out there and alleged that that was going to be the, the proper way to charge him. End of the day... This guy ends up buying some guns from an FBI undercover. He eats a flashbang at his feet, and he's arrested the second that he touches it. The second he touches it, it's gone. He's wrapped up, locked up, and good to go. So that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is, is that his sister came forward and tried to help him out, tried to get him uh, in touch with law enforcement, tried to get him hospitalized in a meaningful way, which is a law enforcement prerogative. And when that happened, she obviously was betrayed because this guy got locked up and charged with terrorism, and he ends up doing 20, 25 years is what his sentence looks like. Now, here's where it gets really ugly. This woman felt betrayed. She felt like she had no other options. She showed up outside of a, of a sheriff's station, a substation outside of Tampa, and there is no reason for her to have chosen this guy that she decided to attack. She literally was sitting out there crying. Someone asked, ma'am, do you need something? They sent a deputy out. That deputy almost was killed when she swung an enormous, an enormous knife, like a 10 or 12 inch butcher knife at him. And he did what he was trained to do. He shot her dead right there. He stopped the threat, put rounds on target, and she died because, because they didn't do their job and help this guy out. They were simply looking at a vulnerable possibility and they took him down. This is yet another story, okay? Um, we're going to pull up a couple more. I'm gonna actually pull up two more of these stories here. I'm gonna end up just covering the entire screen because there's so many of them. These have all been traded out. This is another story. This comes from The Intercept. This is 2021. It's a throwback to a post 9-11 case. The most high profile Al-Qaeda plot foiled after 9-11 was an FBI scam. This is being written by Alice Sperry. It's a, a new frontline documentary. It tells the case of the Liberty City 7. Now, I just did a documentary as well, and the Liberty City 7 are featured in that documentary. We have a reenactment of what happened, and the story is absurd. It also involves people who, if they were not mentally ill, they were certainly mentally challenged because they decided to do something that makes no sense. This was the biggest Al-Qaeda plot the FBI ever said they foiled following 9-11. Uh, it involved no weapons, no plot, and no Al-Qaeda. I want you to hear that one more time. The biggest Al-Qaeda plot foiled after 9-11 involved no weapons, no actual plot, and no Al-Qaeda. These were a couple of guys that apparently decided they were going to blow up the Sears Tower, and it was almost entirely fabricated by undercover operatives who sought the men out, promised them money, and then coached them over multiple months to implicate themselves in a conspiracy to commit violent acts that they never intended, and they never had the means to carry out. They're known as the Liberty City 7. That's the case. Um, it's another connection to poor people who have no good ideas. They have, they're being basically presented with an opportunity by the FBI to go do something incredibly dangerous. And as uh, many of you might guess, they're down in uh, Southern Florida. These guys are actually Haitians. So you've got seven black men who are basically pledging allegiance to ISIS, despite not being Muslim and, and not being able to uh, 
not being able to even articulate what it is that they were supposed to do, except they know they wanted the money. They wanted the money that was out there available, and that money was being promised by the FBI. So they were paid to say some things that didn't make any sense to them. They were like, no big deal. They thought they were scamming those guys. And when they did so, they ended up getting uh, taken down and convicted of this sort of thing. The second story that was up there is another one. This one's coming from the Detroit Free Press. This is a most recent one. Uh, this is March of March uh, 10th of this year, 2023. An FBI mom or FBI telling <laughs> this mom bought a mentally ill son four guns. This was part of the Whitmer case. He threatened to kill Whitmer or anyone who takes his guns. Again, a mentally ill person. He referred to LGBTQ freaks and people who deserve to die. He said that, uh, you know, he was going to uh, to lose his mind on his mother. He didn't want to get any mental health treatment. This is yet another person, highly vulnerable. This is, you know, so many people have seen what went on with the Whitmer case, and it was always a mess. So there, there were actual credible charges of entrapment that went on there. I think that's pretty much the way that it needs to go. Um, we need to open and expand that understanding of what, you know, what's going on, how this works, what is an entrapment. And if people don't understand it, the FBI needs to be better at dealing with entrapment. And stop doing it is the other piece of it. There's a, a concept that I always say that there is a moral equivalency of entrapment, even if it's not the legal equivalent of entrapment. And when they go out there and they engage in what I would say is a moral entrapment, then it should, in fact, get shut down. All right, we're going to put up a couple more pieces on here. Stand by for this one. So now we have two more articles up here. This one's coming again from The Intercept. This one written in 2015. Like I said, I'm jumping all over the map all over the map just to show you how prevalent this is. This is an article written by Frank Frumkin. I'm sorry, Dan Frumkin. <laughs> another terror arrest, another mentally ill man armed by the FBI. Just put that in your head. Another mentally ill, another one of the most vulnerable, armed by the FBI. Had no ability, no ability to do the thing that they said. So this is a sting that's reminiscent, it says, in a sting reminiscent of so many others. Like people are aware of this in the journalistic community. We've now had five or six different journalists, all different names, all noted. They conducted a, another FBI case. This one was on Alexander Sirlico, uh, 23 years old, didn't make a shopping list until after he met with the FBI informant. Uh, and he was quoted as being a very bad person, arrested before he could do a very bad thing. That is some very simple, simple-minded type stuff. Pretty simple. But just like every other sting they do, this guy, <laughs> he went by this name, Ali Al-Ameriki. You guys know that's an American who uh, takes on this like fake Muslim name. And he apparently was mentally ill, obviously had nothing more than he was like ranting about violent jihad. They gave him an opportunity to do something, had no ability to do it. And there he is. He's out there shopping for weapons because he talked to an FBI informant. Now, how does that work? How does it work? FBI informants get paid by cases. If you are in the counterterrorism space, if you are out there and um, trying to earn a living at this, and there are people who are professional sources that make an awful lot of money, it's paid in cash, as we talked about. There's been some great reporting by Julie Kelly letting you know that about $40 million a year on average is paid by the FBI um, into the pockets in cash of FBI informants. A big chunk of that, a huge chunk of that is actually done in the... Um, it's done in the counterterrorism, the national security space. That's kind of how that works out. So this guy received cash because 
the informant was trying to set up a case that could be prosecuted. There's way more money in a prosecution and what they call a disruption that has to be an arrest. They don't actually have to be able to complete. They just have to be able to go through and, um, and get the case started, get the arrest, get the indictment. That's the win for the Bureau as far as being able to do their stats. And what are you going to do? Like, there's almost nothing you can do to stop this, this train at the moment unless we actually take away the funding and the incentive for this type of thing. Now, let's do another one. And this one, I think, is the most poignant of all these. The most poignant is a, uh, a case by Glenn Greenwald. This was the founder of The Intercept. And I'm letting people know in the chat, I do understand that this is freezing. We will, in fact, just repost this. I'm actually recording the entire thing, so thanks so much. And if you're listening on the audio, then you are not having any of the problems that anybody else was. Glenn Greenwald, in February of 2015, wrote an entire article saying, why does the FBI have to manufacture its own plots if terrorism and ISIS are such grave threats? He says this tactic is akin to having the DEA consistently warn about the th severe threat of drug addiction while simultaneously pushing um, drugs by those on its payroll to deliberately get people hooked on the drugs just so they can arrest those addicts that they have created and thus justify their own warnings and budgets. This is, in fact, what we would call the self-licking ice cream cone. Folks, we don't have to talk about it uh, in any unfamiliar way. This is what the self-licking ice cream, ice cream cone is. This is government in a nutshell. Create a problem out of whole cloth because you are incentivized to do so. Solve that problem. Pat yourself on the back continue to create more of the problem, okay? This article is full of examples. Again, there's a bunch of um, <laughs> there's a bunch of these Muslim names. There's a bunch of these guys, uh, including three men who were arrested between the ages of 19 and 30, conspiracy to travel to Syria. That's what we call material support. That means that they were going to spend money to go in and add to the cause, in this case, of ISIS. They were gonna go to Syria and fight for ISIS in 2015. You'll remember that was kind of big at the end of the Obama administration. Um, the crazy thing is this, none of them had any money. They had significant problems being able to get things like passports. And, uh, just because they had these unhinged rantings, almost always mental illness, they were, they were never going to be in the position to actually do the thing that they said. There was no way it was going to happen. There's a direct quote on here of what he calls a very clear pattern. I'm going to read it for you verbatim because I think it's valuable. It says, the known facts from this latest case seem to fit well within a now familiar FBI pattern. It's familiar because guys like Trevor Aronson have been out there writing about it. And his book, The Terror Factory, is worth your time. Whereby the agency does not disrupt planned domestic terror attacks, but rather creates them and then publicly praises itself for stopping its own plots. First, they target a Muslim. It doesn't have to be a Muslim now, as many of us know. This was in 2015 before the big white supremacy thing was going on. Once they started going after white supremacists, they kind of pivoted away. Doesn't mean they're not still going after and setting up Muslims, as you can see by the story in Tampa, but they've got a bigger push now and there's a bigger uh, sort of political movement to go after white supremacy, uh, especially in the wake of January 6th, which you're gonna have to help me understand because I don't know where the white supremacy was there. That doesn't mean that weren't people that thought that way. I'm just saying that's not what that motive was. In any case, first they target a Muslim. It's not due to any evidence or intent or capability to engage in terrorism, but rather for the radical political views that they express. In theory, in theory in this country, you actually allowed to express radical political views. You should be able to have the most inflammatory speech that is not directly calling or inciting violence. There are certain rules that you can't have to stay within. And yet, the only reason we have a First Amendment in the United States is to protect inflammatory speech. Dangerous speech is the, the speech that's protected. And there's a, an awful lot of case law about that. 
And we used to know that in this country as well. People like the ACLU, these sort of uh, leftist uh, advocacy groups, they actually used to go out there and protect the right of Nazis to protest and parade because if they don't have the right to speak, it eventually gets encroached on all of us. And in fact, since we allowed that to be the case, we are now seeing that in real time where the government is trying to censor people. Many of you experienced it on Twitter, on uh, on Facebook, on YouTube, you name it, the social media platforms, the sort of outlets that we have to disseminate information have been censored because of this encroachment and people allowed it. And I always say this, the FBI got away with most of its sins because when it was doing so, it was going after the most vulnerable. It was going after the people that most of the country looked at and said, these people are a problem anyway. You know, better that they get dealt with in this way than, than they're out there on the loose. And that is exactly wrong. It's not a Christian perspective, but moreover, it's not an American perspective to allow people to be taken over by a part of rogue government. And that doesn't matter whether they were commies in the 30s, as they would, would say, the so-called Red Scare. Right? It doesn't matter if they were socialists or workers' unions. It doesn't matter if they were members of the civil rights movement. We know that famously Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was threatened by the FBI. Possibly, uh, I had someone last night in the Twitter space allege that he was actually killed by the FBI. I have no information of that. But based on some of the things that were out there and based on the way the Bureau has acted against black men that were in that position because they were upsetting the status quo, they were sort of the fringe and the most vulnerable in those positions. They were going to jail over civil disobedience and so on. Um, and there's no doubt that the men who killed Malcolm X were set up, at least the men that were convicted of that, they're, they're actually just released. I just read that again. Uh, two men who basically had exculpatory evidence hidden in their trials were sent to jail for 55 years. That's crazy stuff. That's when you have a weaponized federal government and we allow it to happen. We being the American people have allowed it to happen because there is a fundamental belief that these vulnerable people will not be the same as it's not us. It's not me. Well, as they say in that, in the poem that we've heard about the Nazis coming for different groups and finally they ended up and there was no one left to speak up. The time to speak up is, is already here. It's already passed because they are now coming for people who were grandmothers that walked around inside the Capitol, inside the velvet ropes. They were the most vulnerable. They are now the, the most vulnerable because everybody else has been targeted beneath them. Okay. Um, so here's the story. This guy, this this piece by uh, Greenwald goes on and on. It talks about some of the uh, the special types of prisons they were able to do. The fact that uh, the informant's techniques, this is actually 100% correct, induces, lures, cajoles, persuades the targets to agree to carry out an FBI-designed plot. Uh, in some circumstances, the target refuses to go along. They'll have the informant offer a huge cash sum to induce the impoverished target. And then once the target agrees, the FBI swoops in at the last moment, arrests the target, issues a press release, praising themselves for disrupting yet another dangerous attack, which was conceived of, funded, and recruited by the operatives of the FBI. And the DOJ and the federal judges send this person to prison for many years or even decades because that's what they do. They are doing their part of the work. And the FBI then goes and sues or tells Congress they need a much bigger budget. And when they do so, they generally speaking get the bigger budget. That's just how it works. There's nothing, there's nothing crazy about this. This is a well-played, tried and true situation. This is how it works. The Bureau goes out there, manufactures terror, as Trevor Aronson said in his book, The Terror Factory, and then they praise themselves for it, and then they get bigger budgets. The FBI is asking for an $11 billion budget this year, by the way, in addition to money for a new headquarters building. And Chris Ray will be testifying about why he thinks that's true, I'm sure, why they should have it. It should trouble all of us in so many ways. It should be one of the biggest issues, and that's the reason why we do a lot of talking about the Bureau here, 
There is no other way to do it. I'm going to bring up another article. You guys will see this one. This is now taken over. Okay. What does that one say? United States terrorism prosecution are often an illusion. This one comes from 2014. We've been all over the last decade and a half. Investigations and trials of American Muslims are rife with abuse. This is a story talking about an arrest that happened in May of 2009. We've actually gone back even further now, talking about uh, a guy who uh, who was ended up convicted for an alleged plot to bomb synagogues in the Bronx, wanted to shoot down airlines. It's uh, some of the same stories we're hearing over and over again. There are just multiple examples of this. It continues to be the case. There were, uh, in this case, five defendants, it looks like. 215 interviews. The big thing that the FBI loves is when they can go out there and they can separate a group, they can identify them, and they can do all of their favorite techniques. If they can get a FISA, that's even better. Can they get a FISA? Sure. Okay, good. Now you have what's called a sophisticated technique. Someone's getting a bonus on that. Can you use the surveillance team? Okay, fantastic. How many hours of surveillance are you going to book? Okay, we're going to claim what they call a statistical accomplishment. The statistical accomplishment, that's such a mouthful right now. The statistical accomplishments are like what they used to call stats-based policing, which is to say they are actually trying to drive the stats up. And here's the here's the thing that uh, my buddy Steve Friend has been able to articulate. It is perversely, perversely incentivizing the FBI because of the way that they run metrics to actually bump these numbers up. Think about your local police department. Think about your local county sheriff when he runs for office. The sheriff is going to run for office based on the fact that crimes are down. Property crime is down. Auto theft is down. Burglaries are down. Homicides are down. Rapes are down. They want to be able to tell you they've done a good job. They've been a good steward of the office that you've given them. And in doing so, they're going to basically say, come back and let me do it again. Because I'm going to trend crime downward. That's a, that's a net good for the population of the people that live in the county. Okay, And yet, the FBI has the opposite incentives. What they want to see is that their terrorist disruptions are up. Well, the only way that you're going to get more terrorist disruptions, that you're going to justify a bigger and bigger budget, more agents, more headcount, more financial resources, more contracts to pay out to the friends that go and work for these organizations that create the tools, the only way that's all going to happen, the only way that happens is that the FBI generates more terrorism cases. You have to open the terrorism cases to be able to get the statistical accomplishments that you can claim in them. And in order to open them, they have to exist. There has to be predication. And if you can't find that predication, the FBI is perversely incentivized to make it. Garrett O'Boyle, Steve Friend, and I put our heads together. We've come up with this list. Right now, we're up to about 15 news articles written over the last 15 years, and there are plenty more. When you see an FBI investigation into a, a counterterrorism subject or a terrorist subject, you have to realize that we are talking about dozens, more likely hundreds of hours put together by multiple people. There are sources involved that that cost money, that cost handling, that cost time. There's training. They're going to have to uh, go out there and and spend time watching that person. You know, my job was measured in eight-hour days. You would add eight hours at a time, and there would be eight of us. So you're adding 50 to 60 hours every single time that we would spend a day of man hours against that case. And the resources there cost somewhere between five dollars and $10,000 if we were local to where we were uh, working, if we were working in our own area. If they brought in multiple teams, and they did this regularly, what they would call 24-7 surveillance, we would actually have three shifts of eight hours each, and you figured that was a minimum of probably thirty dollars to $50,000 a day worth of salaries, per diem, rental cars, equipment, and so on. 
being able to support these operations, sometimes gaining nothing out of them other than the fact that we knew where they went to have breakfast. So $50,000 a day is nothing in salaries for the FBI to spend on these cases. And they'll do them for weeks, sometimes months. And they don't even have to result in, in prosecution because they're claiming the statistical accomplishments. And then at some point in time, they're able to go and drop a flashbang in their, at their feet and lock them up and get what they call the disruption. That means they broke down the terrorist plot. For numbers sake, 600 disruptions were forecasted by the FBI in 2022. And the total number that they were able to claim was 397. I say this all the time for people to recognize. 397 terrorist disruptions means you have to believe that the FBI basically arrested or interrupted a terrorist plot every single day of the week and two times on Sunday for the entire year. That's an awful lot of terrorist plots. And I don't think most people will believe that those are realistic. That's just not the way that our experience of America looks. Uh, I mentioned Trevor Aronson a number of times. So let's talk about him right here. This is a, a great piece that he wrote. This was going back to 2015 as well. It's the story of uh, Sammy Osmak. Uh, what's his name? Osmak. He was a tall, gaunt jutting cheekbones. He has these really, I like his style. I like Trevor Aronson's style, but the picture is fantastic. Look at this guy. You've got FBI agents actually filming the video of his ISIS uh, swearing. This guy pledged allegiance. He says something that's obviously crazy. He was troubled like so many. He's a 25 year old guy. He made the martyr video and the martyr video was actually filmed by bureau agents in a rundown place in Tampa. Once again, in Tampa, one of my buddies was on this case, said it was the exact same case that I worked. These, these so-called martyrdom videos where they put them out, this was another instance of exactly the same playbook. And the reason why I do this, because this was done in 2012. The case I worked was in 2020, and he was actually sentenced in, in 2022. So when you, when you break this up over a decade, in the same city, the same technique was being used. And Aronson did a great job of reporting on this one a couple years after the fact. Um, it's just, it's shocking that, that one, that people are not aware of it. And two, that they are actually willing to go out there. And uh, you've got agents that just are trying to move these cases along. They do it all the time. Now, I'm no big fan of an organization that you guys may be familiar with called CARE. CARE is the... Um, the Council on American and Islamic Relations, but here they are saying something that's obviously very true, okay? CARE says, the FBI entraps and harms vulnerable Muslims. This is that word again, vulnerable. The least of these, the people that have the biggest problems, people that have a history of bipolar disorder, psychosis, schizophrenia, they make them into Taliban sympathizers. They make them into ISIS sympathizers. And this one tells another story of yet another Muslim guy. It's not about Muslims, guys. It's not. It's about people who are vulnerable. It's about people that are struggling and they have been identified as a potential, I would say, victim in this case. And then they, you know, these people also have really, really bad ideas. There's a couple of them listed on this particular article written by CARE on their blog site. It doesn't have a date on it, but I know it's not new. The, the, when you are only going after people that are susceptible to your bad ideas, like think about the number of people in the world are going to, to go and say they want to blow something up in the United States. It is a diminishingly small number of people that are interested in doing that. A diminishingly small. It is so infrequent that the FBI actually has to go out there and create it. Here's yet another article. I'm going to throw this one back up on here. You're just seeing sort of the, uh, the highlights of this stuff. This is from a, um, a website that's trying to bring this guy home who was actually... Uh, entrapped by the FBI, once again, using the term entrapment of vulnerable youth 
the FBI and trapped this guy whose name is uh, Abdul Rahman. Vulnerable youth, mental health issues, substance abuse. Again, the same thing. This is from uh, Human Rights Watch. They're actually looking at that. And I've got another piece that was written by Human Rights Watch as well. And you continue to see there's a TED Talk that was given by Trevor Aronson. This is yet another example. This guy was 17 years old. We talked the other day on this show about a 16-year-old who was uh, trapped online. They went out there. The minute you find that he's a minor, it should have been the end of it. But instead, you've got these FBI undercover agents working online. It's called the UCE program. Um, I th- what is it called? OCE, the online undercover, I think, is uh, is, is the uh, the program. I actually applied for it. I got turned down. I thought I would actually be really good at doing that. But I wanted to go catch spies and terrorists, uh, you know, not people who are 16-year-old kids that don't know better. There's no discernment being done. And this particular example that you're seeing on the screen right now has about a, a half dozen uh, of the same exact playbook played over and over again all around the country. And you can see the pictures of it. If you decide to go to this website, you're going to just see very young men. They're all under the age of 30, 26 years old, 26 years old, 25 years old, 23 years old, 19 years old, 16 years old. And they get sentenced to these huge prison sentences. Huge, absolutely disgusting. So that leads me to my last point here. And my last one is a story that uh, I didn't actually put up on here. It's from an organization called IdahoTribune.org. It's one of the guys I was actually speaking with last night. And uh, this is an unattributed story by their by their editorial group, written by the Idaho Tribune. It says, exclusive bombshell new whistleblower. Um, it <laughs> reveals, here it is, reveals document multi-agency criminal conspiracy to spy on and entrap American law-abiding citizens. And finally, there's proof. Now, this was written out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. That's where the byline says the bombshell document is talking about something that happened. Many of you remember the Bundy Ranch standoff. Now, the Bundy Ranch standoff was the first in the timeline listed on the militia violent extremist piece that I posted. Many of you will recognize that it was the one talking about the Betsy Ross flag. It was talking about what was going on, um, you know, with uh, the Punisher skull and all these other sort of like law enforcement symbols, the 2A and all this kind of nonsense. Um, they they actually listed the beginning of the militia violent extremist movement, which is absurd. It actually obviously goes back further than this, but they, they talk about the Bundy Ranch being the first sort of important piece on that timeline, which means that they've already categorized these guys as extremists. That makes them vulnerable. These are land, you know, people that are trying to run cattle on land. That's actually pretty edgy business. And so you had a bunch of people that showed up to support because they don't like the feds and they don't want to be bothered. And that makes them quote unquote fringe. It's the same exact technique used against Catholics who like the Latin mass. They're trying to find the quote unquote vulnerable, the people that they can carve off from the herd. And they are going to enact this playbook over and over again. This entrapment case that they're talking about, and I actually highly recommend going to idahotribune.org, shows you a lot of screenshots of documents. And what I didn't realize is that there was a Bureau of Land Management agents who do not have the same rules to operate as people like the FBI do. They're out there um, trying to entrap these guys by, you know, first of all, they were berating them, calling them retards and rednecks and douchebags and tractor faces, idiots and inbred and so on. There's all these text messages going back and forth between BLM agents talking about how bad they were, trying to figure out how they could get these guys to commit suicide while they were sitting in the uh, in this um, this wildlife refuge that they happened to take over. And, you know, thankfully, there's guys like Larry Clayman, who uh, used to be, he was the founder of Judicial Watch. Now he runs Freedom Watch, Inc. They do all these FOIA requests. Um, similar to Judicial Watch, but a different kind of bend. And they've got 250 page, 250 pages of this whistleblower testimony basically stating, hey, I got a problem with what's going on in here. I don't like the way it's being talked about. I don't like the way the supervisors are running this. And the BLM has some totally different 
They don't have some totally different rules about the way they run sources and operations. And who even knew that the Bureau of Land Management inside the Department of the Interior was running law enforcement operations on these things? You thought they were out there maintaining. Instead, they're letting forest fires happen and doing poor land maintenance. And uh, and they're out there trying to entrap these guys doing uh, warrantless surveillance. They're actually running military-style operations is what it was des- described as. And then here's the really weird thing. Social media misinformation campaigns that were being conducted by the federal government against U.S. citizens. I highly recommend you guys go read this whole article. There's no way I can cover all of it. But over and over and over again, they have screenshots. They have the pictures. They have the actual documents from this uh, from this whistleblower. And he included a whole bunch of information on there, including text messages, going back and forth, talking about what they were trying to do. Um, there's some information here about a federal agent that was actually trying to talk to folks that were inside, trying to move um, Bundy's daughter, whose name, I believe her name was Bailey. They were trying to get Bailey to do some certain things, um, kind of goading them on to engage the federal government in a violent way, because that would allow them to go in and shut this thing down. And of course there was a compound that was built up outside of this. You remember it ended up being a nonviolent thing other than the fact that, uh, the FBI's hostage rescue team got involved and started shooting there. Um, that all of this stuff and, and you know, whether he's, he's justified or not, the situation was such a goofy and crazy scenario to set up. You had, you had a federal agency pushing for violence, and we've seen that in Ruby Ridge. We saw stuff that was going on that was a, an absolute terrible take in Waco. We're actually seeing, I think, the 2.0 reboot of a lot of that sort of attitude in the government. And what they're going to do is paint themselves as a victim, because if you remember how those things ended, people who remember the 90s, the early 90s, the Ruby Ridge time in Idaho, the, uh, the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, and the way that thing ended, it inspired one person that many of you should remember, Timothy McVeigh. It inspired him to do the Oklahoma City bombing. And that is a terrible outcome because a bunch of children lost their lives in that and people who were completely, completely unrelated to any of these situations, they were the ones that ended up being the ones who were uh, paid the price. They're the ones who died for the policies and the procedures that were enacted by upper management in these federal government agencies, whether it be ATF, DEA, FBI, and so on. There's nothing worse than that. Um, Folks, you can go ahead and stay tuned. I know my buddies are going to be commenting over the next couple of days on what's happening in the uh, the hearings with Chris Ray. I expect almost nothing of it. It's going to be talking points. So it'll be interesting if, if anything outside of that comes out. But don't expect anything more than sources and methods and ongoing investigation. And I don't tell you anything because we're an intelligence agency and we don't tell you the truth. All that being said, I will be meeting up with Ryan Matta later on, I believe, unless this flight uh, is permanently canceled. But hopefully I'll end up seeing him. Uh, in Memphis. I'm going to be speaking on a small panel and I'll be back to you guys. We'll be back on Friday with another interview because I'm going to be on the road and we're going to play you something that was, uh, I think, very interesting. But uh, I do appreciate you all sticking with us. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9.30 Eastern, 8.30 Central. I know today was a little bit glitchy on the video. I will upload a good version of it, so stand by for that. I do appreciate your patience. Don't forget to like this video on Rumble when it comes out. It's rumble.com slash Serafin, and you can share the link for today's show on your favorite social media platforms. Please consider subscribing on Rumble, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, so be it. Put your name on there, and we do really appreciate it. This show grows because of the listeners like you and the five-star reviews that you're putting out there. I had one of these pulled up, so give me one second, and we will pull up a five-star review. And this one is from DBA1Mom, or Zib. It says, another winner, five stars, July 5th. I thank the Lord every morning for Kyle and all the whistleblowers and the truth tellers. Thank you for yet another revealing hour of discovery. I love the range demo. I'll be using that exercise uh, either today or tomorrow. It's a good practice for my son. Can't wait for Friday. Prayers, love, America, love. We appreciate you, Zib. Thanks so much for that. And uh, 
This show is only possible because of the hard work, generally speaking, of Ryan Matta. Many of you are seeing how valuable Ryan Matta actually is. We've tried to up the game on here, and we'll be doing it again soon. You can follow Ryan at Ryan Matta, M-A-T-T-A Media, Ryan Matta Media on Twitter. And our opening theme is produced and composed by my brother, the very talented Casey Serafin. Folks, we'll see you again on Friday. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at Kyle Serafin.